0: Good morning, everyone. Thank you for joining us today at Foster Source. Today we're gonna to be talking about different traditions during the holiday season and how we can honor those traditions with the children in our care. I'm Very excited to have Dr. Bridget McClellan with us today. I wanna to thank our intern, Devin. Dr. Bridget comes to us from a connection with Devin. This is the first time we've uh, had this class and we're really, really excited to offer you some. Something new. Um, we had last week, we had our foster care alumni panel. That was a panel of adults who had spent time in care as children. Um, we spent a few hours talking about what did your foster parents do well? What did your foster parents do that triggered you, but they, you know, maybe unintentionally? Um, that is now up in our on demand section, so you can still view that and receive credit for it. When we mentioned last week that Dr. Bridget would be coming and offering this uh, training, the alumni all cheered. They were very excited and said, this is a really, really important topic. So I'm just thrilled to have Dr. Bridget with us. You can feel free to chat amongst yourselves or directly, privately with any of us on the panel through the chat. Um, If you have a question for Dr. Bridget, please submit it in the Q&A and we will get it answered for you. I think that's all. If you have questions, let us know. Um, thank you for joining us and thank you, Dr. Bridget, for being here.
1: Hey, good morning, everyone. Well, I am actually preparing to share my screen and getting that up and running. Um, I actually want to start with a little bit of an interactive activity. Um, so, I by training, I'm a clinical psychologist, um, and I do uh, spend some time with Devin. And I wanted to do this topic. Um, when Actually, when Devin came to me, um, she asked me if I would be willing to do a presentation. And part of my reasoning for doing this is I myself used to be a kinship foster care provider. Um, so. You know, I actually talked to my siblings that have been in, in foster care, um, and got some su- suggestions and thoughts from them. Um, so I was hoping I can share some of my, you know, experiences as well as some of what comes from my background and training with you today. Um, so as we get started, um, the topic is mindful manners and happy holidays. Um, it's not truly just about the holidays, but it is about the idea of you know, how do we deal with this um, intersection that comes from um, cultural differences, some of the implicit biases we have, the potential for microaggressions, um, and also um, supporting the youth that we work with um, through trauma. Um, So what I wanted to actually start with is um, asking this question. I'm going to uh, just list a couple of holidays that are popular. And if you celebrate that holiday, What I want you to do is um, type in, I think everybody's typing into the Q&A, just take 30 seconds and type in um, one or two things that are important to you and how you celebrate that holiday. Um, So the first one that I am going to say is the one that's coming up, uh, Thanksgiving. Go ahead and put that in the chat, guys, and I'll read some of those off for you as they come in. Food,
0: <laughs> number one, food, spending time with family, Thanksgiving, family and food, family, 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 family time and food. Okay. Football. Football. Okay. That's a different one. Okay. Good. Family dinner, family, time with family, family and food seems to be the gifts slash treats, board okay. games, pizza and bowling, quality time with family. Time off, mm-hmm. volunteering with my dad, hunting the, the deer numbers. with only a dinner knife, just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> Sharing why we're blessed and thankful, food, glorious food, cook together, watch football, talking about gratefulness, uh, f- friends and games, taking time off, yes, driving around with, from driving around with the kids, yeah, from all the appointments for sure. Mm -hmm. someone says I'm from Europe Thanksgiving was not
1: celebrated I love it okay I really love that um and being mindful there may be some some children in your home that did not celebrate Thanksgiving or you know Thanksgiving could have been a particularly difficult time for families especially if they didn't have access to food or um or the celebratory foods that are you know within certain people's tradition
0: well, okay. and I never thought of this, but a lot of okay. our foster parents have ICWA cases, so they have native children.
1: Yes, and, and that's I'm the other piece. Sure, that looks very different. Yes, yes. Um, so, if you have a child that is um, um, from that that status, you have you have to be mindful of that, and where does it fit, and how do you have those conversations, right?
0: Someone says one okay. of our children wants to make tamales for Thanksgiving. I love it.
1: I love it. I absolutely love it. Okay, are so you guys next...
0: going to embrace that? Are you making tamales? <laughs> Let's see what they say. I'm sure they are.
1: Yes, of course. Awesome. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, the next holiday I want to men- mention um, is Hanukkah. Any Han Yep,
0: Devin says Hanukkah. Let's see. Anyone celebrating Hanukkah? Lighting the menorah, harkas, songs, menorah, latkes, it's not something we've celebrated. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Dreidel. Haven't celebrated unless we had a child that would. Haven't Mm -hmm. celebrated the prayers, lighting candles, spending time with family. We did not celebrate Hanukkah. Books, Mm -hmm. haven't celebrated. Hunting the deer with only a dinner fork, just kidding. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Kevin's gonna be our our comic relief today.
1: Mm -hmm. Small
0: gifts. Eight days. Mm -hmm.
1: Awesome. Okay. The next one I'm going to say um, is Christmas.
0: what comes up as most important for you for everyone there family time setting up the tree Christmas tree presents songs gifts and candy old movies food baking setting up the tree of the family even if it's two months early yep movies playing in the snow Train and books, time with family, travel, movies, hot cocoa, baking, Mm -hmm. staying home, lights outside, Hallmark movies, games, ravioli on Christmas Day. I love that. Family Mm -hmm. and a Christmas walk, a Christmas parade, gift exchange, baking cookies, decorate the tree and make cookies together, the light tour, eggnog, Mm
1: -hmm.
0: baklava, love it, a Charlie Brown Christmas, yes. Chinese food on Christmas Eve, it's a fun mm-hmm. tradition. Special ornament for children with us for the first Christmas. That I love that. Mm-hmm. Presents under the tree, decorating cookies, making a stocking for them too. Absolutely.
1: Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Someone says um, we get the, seven the next fish. one. Go ahead. Yeah, the next one I want to share is Kwanzaa.
0: Kwanzaa. Any Kwanzaa celebrators out there?
1: dead air dr bridget okay that's why i I bring handouts and things yeah (laughs) Um, okay so kwanzaa um it actually means uh first fruits and it's based on um ancient african harvest festivals and um, celebrates ideals such as family life and unity um it's a spiritual holiday and it's celebrated from december 26th through january 1st um oftentimes it's celebrated in african-american homes um and families may choose to dress in special clothes decorate their homes um, give different gifts um, related to each day of the celebration um and there may be decorations with fruits and vegetables as well as lighting the candle holder called the canara um so that may be something um that comes up in your in your in your home if you if you have a child who is of african-american or black descent um so I wanted to, to throw that one in there. There's a couple more um, and I don't want to spend too much time just but just thinking about some different things. Um, what about, and this one comes up in the summer, um, it's called the Arapaho Sundance. Arapaho Sundance.
0: Does not sound like this something main, familiar. Yep, never heard of it, is what people are saying.
1: <laughs> okay, so this is um, celebrated more in uh, Wyoming. Um, so this is Cheyenne, Arapaho, and So um, and members of other Plains Indian tribes um, actually dance around a pole topped by a buffalo's head. The buffalo is a symbol of plenty, um, and dancers wish for good fortune in the year ahead. Interesting. Um, And then, well, I'll bring in just two more, and then we'll really get started. Or I should say, yeah, two more. Um, What about Ramadan? Ramadan happens during at different times of the year. Yep, Ramadan. Fasting. Lots of prayer. Someone
0: says, I've had students who celebrated Ramadan. My sister lives in an area where they celebrate that, so it's kind of secondhand knowledge to us. Mm -hmm. Uh, Prayer, meditation, breaking the fast. Mm -hmm. Snacks after sunset. Mm-hmm. Fasting, yep. Asking for forgiveness. What is the last one you have, Dr. Bridget?
1: The last one that I have is Day of the Dead. Ah, yeah. Day of the Dead. And I'm not a Spanish speaker, it's traditionally called Dia de los Muertos.
0: Honoring ancestors. Absolutely. Never celebrated, but well aware of it. Remembering ancestors. Sugar skulls. Yep. Mm -hmm. What is is it called? The ofrenda? Where you... That's kind of like the, where they set all the pictures. Mm-hmm. That's good. Yes, I was going to say yes, I, I know this from Coco. <laughs> Music, Coco, mm-hmm. visiting relatives. Prayer, never celebrated it. Oh, and yes, flowers, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Awesome,
1: okay. awesome. Okay. Thank you for bearing with me and participating in this activity. Um, the reason why I did this was for us to hear some of the differences in the diversity of, of- You know, even some of the same holidays with the same different things overdo some of the same things, um, or even how some of the same things may look totally different. Um, So I want you to kind of take those thoughts and some of your reactions um, to what came up in in the responses um, and be mindful of them as you go through um, this presentation um, and this training um, and just being able to reflect back as we move through things. Okay, Okay. so I wanted to start the actual presentation with John's words of wisdom, right? You may be saying, who is John, right? Um, so John actually spent 14 years in the, cult, in the foster care system, and he was with multiple families, um, and he's also my brother. Um, while I was making this presentation, I actually asked him to look over my slides, um, and I asked him, "What if, if you were able to be there with me and and speak to these families, what are the things that you would want them to know?" Um, so he he thought about it. He he spent probably about half hour, forty five minutes, going through things, um, asking me questions about what does this word mean or what does that mean, and um, what made you decide to put that in there? And, and it actually encouraged me to make some edits and make some changes. Um, and John is um, 22 now. Um, and he work he works, and he's been to college and things of that nature. So I, I would consider him a, a, a successful individual. Um, and this is what he told me. Um, he said, I always wanted to feel like part of the family. He said, uh, sometimes either unintentionally or intentionally, it felt like um, he didn't, he felt like standards were different for him. Um, And he didn't always understand that. He said, you know, as he got older, um, things, you know, he was able to kind of discern more of like, you know, is it me versus is it them? um, type stuff, but sometimes it it was more obvious. And, and he said, you know, having conversations to help, um, understand one another and, and what makes him feel like more of the family would, would have been helpful all those years. Um, he also said, don't be too nice and don't be too mean. Um, he said oftentimes he, he wanted something in the middle. He wanted like, and it went back to his feeling of being part of the family. He said, if I was, you know, he noticed that sometimes him as the foster child would be treated more nicely than the biological children in the household. And it made him feel like he wasn't part of that family or he wasn't one of the children in that family. Um, But he said, you know, try to strike a balance as much as you can.
0: I Um, think that's that's interesting, Dr. Bridget, because I know – for me as a foster parent, I probably struggled with being too nice, you know, I was stumbling over myself trying to make the child feel as comfortable as possible. Um, and it was probably, it was probably too much. I probably just needed to take a breath and sit with them in the discomfort of having to be in a stranger's home.
1: Hmm. Yeah, absolutely,
0: absolutely. You know there's that tendency to want to fix which we can't it's a t- it's not a good situation they're going to be uncomfortable um mm-hmm. I don't know let us know in the chat if you guys struggle with with things like that as well I'm interested about the spaghetti what's up with the spaghetti
1: <laughs> yeah um so the spaghetti you know that um actually speaks to his trauma um so in our family, like we always made spaghetti. That was one of our, our favorite things to do. Um, so I, at the last couple of years that uh, John was in care, I became his foster parent. Um, I never adopted him one because he's my brother and two, because he's always said he knows who his biological parents are um, and he didn't want to be adopted. Um, but um, what he did say was um, he had some really good homes that he was in and the spaghetti was kind of okay um but then before he came to live with me he was there were some families that weren't necessarily as great um to the point where um he talked about um being served like separate meals like the family had one meal and he would keep getting the spaghetti and sometimes the spaghetti would have rotten meat and things like that in it. Um, so when he came to live with me, I thought I would reintroduce the family tradition of spaghetti. Um, and it was pretty traumatic for him. He was like, I can't eat this. I'm not going to do it. I'm, and got really upset um, about the fact that I had made spaghetti. Um, and to this day, um, it's funny. We've had a conversation about it recently and he said, you know, everybody says your spaghetti good. Um, and I've been working on it. So, um, he said, I was sometime soon, um, let's talk about it. And I want to try your spaghetti. Um, but that's why that's, that comment is there. Um, the unanticipated trauma that that can come up from, from things that we don't even, that we just, you know, assume are, are normal things.
0: Yeah.
1: That's powerful. Okay okay, why, why did I want to go here? Why did I want to call this um, what I did? Um, and you heard a little bit about the fact that we uh, celebrate holidays differently. Um, and it's important for us to have special time um, and special experiences. Um, so sometimes um, by having these discussions ahead of time, It's, it can offer us some insight to, you know, what's important to the children that are placed with us as well as potentially, uh, past trauma. I apologize if you hear noise in my background. My, my son is actually with his dad, um, all the way on the other side of the house, but sometimes he can, he can get a little excited. (laughs) If
0: any audience understands that, it's this one. So no stress. Okay. So <laughs> Someone no says worries. Our, our current foster daughter says that she has never really celebrated Christmas. In fact, one of her biggest traumas happened on Christmas Day.
1: Mm-hmm. Exactly. And I think that's one of the things we want to know. Um, because, one, you don't want to not celebrate things that are important to you. And at the same time, you don't want to re-traumatize the children that are in your home. Um, so it's worth having conversations ahead of time about how do you balance that, right? Um, does she not want to do Christmas at all? Um, or does she want to, um, you know, do something different or, you know, be separate in a way during certain times and there's, a, there's an understanding and there's the cue word that she needs a break. Um, or does she want to, you know, reintroduce this holiday with you and your family? Um, those are all great questions, and I think we're going to get into some of the strategies for having these discussions in a um, in a mindful way um, as we go through um, the slides here.
0: Yeah. Someone says my very first foster kiddo was very, very overwhelmed and triggered by gifts. Mm-hmm. Um, we had to have a gift conversation with the bio family our first Christmas because they sent so many gifts it took three days to open them. Wow, oh, right. So we've got one end of the spectrum to the
1: other. It sounds like right, exactly. And it's and you have to sometimes you you have time to think ahead and sometimes you don't like you know and and how do you you know bring these things about and you know if these families are in contact with their bio families you know, sometimes biological families feel really bad about what happened. Um, So they may try to overcompensate by sending tons and tons and tons of gifts. And then you may have other children in your house that have one or two gifts or don't celebrate Christmas at all, or are wondering what's going on. And, you know, does my family not care as much because maybe their biological family couldn't afford to purchase those gifts. So how do you strike a balance between the equity and and the understanding that people out there care for these kids. Um, The other um, reasons why um, I wanted to talk about this is sometimes children actually feel safer talking about holidays and other cultural things um, than actually talking straight up about race and culture. Um, because holidays are things that that happen. We see them in the media. Um, They're talked about in school. Their friends talk about them. So there's some normalcy to talking about holidays um, at almost any age. Um, But when we talk about race and culture, there's that question of, you know, like, am I making someone feel uncomfortable or am I overbearing or I'm taking up too much space? So sometimes we can take up just enough space by talking about, Um, the holidays and what we do around these times and get to learn about one another in a what may be a safer way sometimes.
0: Um, And I think for foster families too it it can be a struggle because we may or may not either number one be in touch with biofamily or number two have that open of a relationship yet with the biofamily where we can actually have these conversations. So sometimes we're relying on the children and their experiences and they may not know how to articulate what they're feeling about a holiday is, does that make sense
1: mhm absolutely um, and what comes through loud and clear is their experiences just like you were talking about um, you know the tons of gifts or versus you know we don't we didn't we never celebrated we didn't do this you know um and then, yeah, the mindful discussions and enhancing our communication sharing strategies through this. OK, I'm going to give you a couple of disclosures. Um, I have no financial disclosure, so there's nothing I am trying to sell you. Um, I am a psychologist, um, but this presentation is not therapy. Um, I am a mother. And you know, as you learned from before, I am a past foster mother. So that kind of brings me to my lens, right? The rose-colored glasses. How do I see things? Um, So I see things as as a female, as a person of color, um, as a person who is very family-oriented and and tied to um, what family means. And it means a lot of different things for the different people that I'm connected to. Um, Because, you know, some of my friends I consider family just as much as my biological family. the closeness versus the strains and the challenges that come with all of those aspects and the interactions. Um, as a child, I technically met criteria for being disadvantaged, <clears throat> and I own that. Um, I went to, I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio, so I was in the Cleveland public school system, um, and then I was, you know, privileged to be able to get a college education afterwards, um, and went to, you know. Some, some great schools, um, but it was something that was mindful in me realizing that as I went through these stages, um, a lot of the people that I grew up with and had similar um, experiences with, um, the people that I went to school with and trained with did not have those experiences, um, and sometimes it created disconnects, um, not only with me, but also, you know, as I started to get into my field, um, some disconnects in how people work with people um, who are considered disadvantaged and you know, currently going through some of the challenges that I experienced as a child. Um, so I'm, I'm also very mindful of what that looks like and what it sounds like as well as what we say, the, the impact versus intent um, aspect of things. Um, so I also have the mental health professional lens. I, I not only look for what people are saying, but how they're saying and what they're hoping to say in those moments and how much those things match up versus how much those things are maybe different um, and may come across different or be perceived differently than what, than how they were attended. Um, I'm also a gener- i I was born kind of on the cusp, so I sit right in between. Uh, being a generation Xer, and a millennial. Um, I was actually looking for information on this and found a new term called Xenial. So these are kind of those individuals that may have been born kind of between like 1978 and 83-ish that sit on the cusp and kind of have, you know, both those experiences of being well and mindful. So a lot of times I can... I can sit in both places and sometimes I, I don't get everything that fits for either one of those um those generations so it does sometimes create some some different things that go on for me because i sit in the middle okay objectives so First and foremost, we all have biases. If we didn't have biases, it would be a very boring world. So I don't want you to feel bad about having biases. It's your preference, right? Um, Whether you prefer the the presentation to be purple or blue, that's a biases and it's okay. Um, But what we don't want the biases to create is um, accidental microaggressions um, and retention. So, um, the more we're aware of our biases and our ability to speak to them and understand that other people may think or feel differently, um, the better off we tend to be and I want people to also realize that it's a lifelong process. You don't um, perfect this over a series of trainings or days or um, whatnot. You you continue to learn throughout your life, lifetime about these things. Um I keep coming back to this. This is something that always strikes true for me. Um, Communication impact versus intent, um, and how do we line those things up as much as we can um, when possible. Um, I also want us to think about identifying healthy strategies for exploring differences. improve the mindfulness that we have that's related to the impact of trauma um, on our cultural values. I also realize that sometimes, um, you know, when children are placed with you, um, you're given this file that says, you know, this child is of this descent from this family. and It may say like, these are, you know, family values. But we don't always know how that child views it unless it came from the voice of the child and it may also change um, through experiences. So, you know, just thinking about how that fits and how do we have those conversations. Um, And the last one is to identify strategies for improving our communication patterns. So I'm I'm hoping I'm touching on most of the things that people are coming here for. If not, um I always want you to jump in and ask questions and um and to have dialogue because like the meaning of this to- topic is not for me just to to sit here and talk at you. Um I want to definitely interact with you um and make this presentation your own so that you have space to get your questions answered and and to be a better foster parent and get what you need um, during this time. It's a, it's a Saturday morning and you're choosing to spend it with me, um, which is, a, you know, it's a, a um, I appreciate it, right? And I'm honored and humbled that you would choose to spend your Saturday morning this way. Um, so I, I do want to make it meaningful for you as we move through this. I'm going to give a, us a couple of terms. And, um, so there are links for more information, and I'm not sure if the, the information, those links can be shared with, um, with the people who are participating, but I'm, I'm fine with that if, if you're interested in learning more about these things.
0: Yes, we can put them in the chat, and then also, everyone, this presentation is actually uploaded in the classroom under the handouts tab for today's class, so you can go back to this and refer to it anytime.
1: Okay. Perfect. Um, so I'm just going to introduce these terms, um, and there again, there's just a tidbit of something to put in your toolbox to be mindful of as we go through the rest of the information. Um, so implicit bias. So these are, you know, getting back to this idea, these are the stereotypes and attitudes that, you know, unconsciously impact um, how we act, what our attitudes are, and the decisions that we make. Um, Typically um, implicit biases, um, they're very pervasive. They may not be overly obvious. Um, They favor the in-group. And when I say they favor the in-group, it's people who look like you, right? So it may be women. It may be people of color. It may be people of um, dominant race. It it could be anything. Um, It could be across religion. so when you get around people that are similar, right, and fit into these places, it's, it's very easy to get into the group think, right? We all start to talk and think alike, and we forget that other, other people that may not have those identities think and feel the same way. Um, it does not always align with our declared values. Um, so sometimes it's, it's those things we think about in and, and we may feel guilty about, right? Or we may feel a certain kind of way about it. Um, but we may not put that out there publicly. Um, however, we want to be mindful of how it impacts how we act and how we react to people, right? Um, the one thing that, um, that comes to mind is um, I've had a couple of instances where I'm going into the grocery store, right? And I get out of my car um, and I, you know, start walking through, through the parking lot towards the entrance, um, and I see someone like feverishly trying to lock their car door right as I'm walking through. Right, um, I know that I'm not gonna harm them or I'm not coming after them, but there's something about their sense of implicit bias whether it's trauma, whether it's race related, whether it can be anything that may have given that person that concern that I may not be safe, right. Um, That's implicit bias. Um, And then the impact of it can be changed through mindful awareness. Um, I'm not saying implicit bias goes away, it does not go away. Um, But again, this idea of how do we make ourselves aware of it and also challenge ourselves to say, to ask the question of the reason why we're doing what we're doing or why we're acting the way that we're acting and making those decisions and what is influencing how we're moving forward. The next term is microaggression. Um, I feel like this has kind of been more of a popular term at work for me and um, in other professional settings. Um, And this is one of those words that John asked me. He's like, what is a microaggression? (laughs) What does that mean? Um, So these are subtle actions and behaviors um, and statements that are discriminatory against minority groups. Um, in simple, you know, simple ways, they can be called, they can be considered racial slights, um, and they can be conscious or unconscious. Um, I put a couple of examples there, and I, I probably put some of the, the, the nicer ones. Um, does anybody have any examples that they could think of or that they're aware of?
0: These are hard to hard to admit. Um, but They're you're right. We them. all have them. Yeah. You are. Right? Oh, you. This is a good one for kids in care. The you are strong despite being, etc. 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 Right. hmm Right. You are strong for being in foster care. Or yep. you know, people tell me my kid is friendlier than they thought he would be.
1: Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and I mean, and when I say unconscious, like sometimes, like these things are not intent, intended to harm. We go back to this impact versus intent, right? Sometimes we're, we're thinking we're giving somebody a compliment, um, but when they hear it and they listen to it, it's like, oh my gosh, oh, I, you know, now I get how harmful that could be, right? Oh, this is a good one. Someone
0: says, would, would a microaggression be having to sign forms for school and the forms say father and mother when we're a two-mom family? Yes. I, I would agree. I think that Absolutely. is a microaggression.
1: Yep. It's that assumption that every family um, is built with a, a male and a female, right? And that's not always the truth. And some of the strongest families are not built like that and do not look like that. Um, you know, I hear that a lot with grandparent led households too.
0: Oh yeah. This is, someone says your hair is so hard for me to handle.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, absolutely. That's a a big one.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I remember I was doing a training one time and I was, I was the learner, um, and part of the training involved, um, um, like electrodes being placed on our scalp, and uh, one of the trainers was like, "Oh gosh, your hair is, is just so thick. If I could just shave your head, it would be so much uh, easier, right?" Yeah.
0: Um, Someone says comparing w- you to the dominant paradigm mm-hmm. and being surprised or commenting when there's not a match to the dominant Absolutely. paradigm. Yeah, for sure. Right,
1: right. You 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 speak so well for a person of you know whatever you know race they may be or whatever culture or where they may be from that's that's definitely a microaggression. Okay I'm going to be mindful of of our time. I think we're doing well though and then if, if, if I need to come back I can come back.
0: This is another good one. Someone says, okay. um, we've had not-so-microaggressions, too, like neighbors assuming our Latino child did something when it was our white child. Mm. So that's not even micro. That's in-your-face, right, bias. That's,
1: yep, yeah, that's definitely, that's, like, very, you know, yeah, very clear. Not even implicit bias. That's Yeah, like that's just bias. bias. Yeah,
0: Or you don't look LGBTQ.
1: hmm right, right and just thinking about how people who hear that, um, and identify um, what their experience becomes in those moments. Okay, the last term I have is cultural humility. Um, This is something that I've more recently started to learn about. and just this idea of, of striving towards uh, cultural humi- humility. Um, and it's the idea of having an outward stance that is um, open and supportive um, to the beliefs of others, um, while built, still being um, aware of your own beliefs. So this is that idea of being, a, of knowing who you are, um, being proud and confident of, about who you are, um, and being able to discuss it and share it in a way that does not shut other people down, um, as well as creates a sense of openness and community to hear others' experiences and uh, live values and, um, and whatnot. Um, you know, I always talk about the aspect of there being multiple truths, um, depending on where your viewpoint is um, and your perception. Um, 10 people could sit in a room and experience the exact same thing. Um, and have 10 different experiences um, and just because those experiences are described differently does not mean that they're not true. Um, they, they are what is true for that that person and that individual um, and being able to find some sense of security and, and honoring um, and ownership of that.
0: I think that's so important you know if, if some, just because someone entered or experienced something differently that does not invalidate their experience. That was their experience.
1: Mm -hmm. That's right. So again, these are still tidbits to take with you and carry and hold with you, right? Um, And this is more theory. Um, You know, I wanna spend more of the rest of our time really getting into the the meat and potatoes of how do we actually carry these things with us um, as we do what we do? So as we start to get into things, um, please remember this. Um, if something that I talk about or that gets discussed or comes up in the Q&A or the chat um, makes you feel uncomfortable um, or gives you a gut reaction, um, I want you to take a moment to just take a step back and consider to of uh, leaning into the understanding of what is underneath those feelings of discomfort. Um, did that person slight you? That's possible, right? Um, did it bring up a, a moment of a negative experience or a traumatic experience from the past? And there was no slight there. It was just you know something that's been there all the long, all along. Um, is it something that triggers feelings of guilt um, related to power or privilege, right? Um, and just being mindful, and I have the, the graphic there of the iceberg, right? We see the tip of the iceberg, um, but there's so much more underneath, um, the size, the contour, the color, the ridges, the things that change. um, All of those things are what gives us what we see at the top, but we don't necessarily always see what's underneath that surface that's given to us. Okay so here is our next activity. Um, I don't want people to necessarily feel like they have to um, share these these thoughts but it, this is just some questions to kind of think through um, and it really encourages um, increasing more mindful awareness of of you and yourself and how you interact with your environment. Um, so first, I want, to th- I want you to think about who you are um, and what aspects about you are most important to you. The next thing I want you to spend a few minutes thinking about is how do others view you? And now think about how you would like for others to view you. Now, how you actually portray who you are And finally, I would like for you to think about how who you are impacts others. And I'm gonna pause there for a second. Um, And I'm going to invite comments, but I don't wanna require comments. It's kind of heavy, right? Mm-hmm. Right. And I don't necessarily expect people to jump in and respond immediately. So I want to just give a little bit of a gap.
0: I think for me, my fear is, would be hard. that people don't view me the way I would want them to view me.
1: hmm Yeah.
0: or how we're portraying ourselves may not be how we're wanting to, but our, our fears and our biases block sometimes, block us from portraying who we really wanna be. Absolutely. Um, someone says, I wanna be a person who lives with integrity and empathy. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Someone says, I'm seen as a foreigner due to my accent, and it often overrides anything else. Mm. I, I can understand that. Brian and I lived overseas for about a decade, and it was always the first identifier for us,
1: mm-hmm.
0: was the foreigner. Absolutely. Right. I think that sometimes, let's see what this says. I think that sometimes my parents focus so much on teaching us kids to think about how our actions affected other people that I also need to remember that it's okay to be me and not always be worried about how who I am may rub someone else the wrong way. Absolutely. We all have the right to live freely as who we are created to be without judgment from others. I agree 100%.
1: Right. We, we all have the right to take up space, right? And we want to take up our own space. Um, we just don't want to take over other people's space.
0: Someone says, I'm neurodiverse. So when I act naturally, I get on people's nerves. I have to think about what I do. Right. People have a tendency to prejudge the foster parent and the child, and it's hard to find acceptance. Absolutely. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, yes. I'm seen as the person with too many kids and nothing else.
1: Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, I, I hear I hear it all, right? You, you hear the, gosh, you're, you're a saint for, for being a foster parent, um, or, you know, are you, are you in it for the money or, um, you know? It could be any number of reasons and anything in between, or you couldn't find anything else to do, or how do you fit this into your, your busy life? Um, anything and everything comes up, right? Because being a foster parent becomes part of your identity. It's a role identity.
0: Someone says, I'm also neuro- neurodiverse, but I'm trying to let myself quote unquote, unmask more. hmm kind of right. step into your authenticity, right?
1: Mm-hmm. Right. And I, I oftentimes talk about how do I maintain my authenticity across um, the different people that I interact with because I, I can be my authentic self across different populations, but still present differently, right? There's different aspects of, of unmasking and how we unmask in those moments because Um, you're going to interact differently with the children who are in your home versus your parents, um, if your parents are around, or grandparents, um, as well as co-workers, um, friends, family, Um, and you can be your authentic self across all of those spaces, but the way you show up um, may present differently.
0: Yes. Someone says, aren't you too old? Yes, we get that a lot.
1: Mm-hmm. yeah. And then as I think about this, I also want us to kind of flip this on its head a little bit, right? And as foster parents, also be mindful of, of the identity of the foster children in your home. They probably are not specifically thinking about these questions. Um, but regardless of their age, there is that idea of who they are and who they want to present to you and how it impacts the dynamics of your household. Yeah.
0: Can you talk a little bit about the term neurodiverse?
1: Neurodiverse. Are you asking me to talk about it? Yes. Gosh, that's something I didn't even think a lot about. Um, and when you say that, I think, so that one came up, right? Yeah. So I may, I'm going to flip it back a little bit and, and just ask one, um, you know, what are, what are, what aspects are we talking about? Well, when I use the, sometimes in dealing
0: with my son's school, I have to explain to them how it's not helpful to compare him to what I call his quote-unquote neurotypical peers and
1: mm-hmm. what I
0: mean by that are peers that aren't coming from traumatic backgrounds or having their development their DNA be having been altered due to abuse mm-hmm. and neglect mm-hmm. anyone else want to throw in some some comments there right
1: because um, when I when I hear it in more so in my environment, it's more thinking about like sensory things and, yeah. you know, kids that, you know, present differently because of um, neurological, dif- you know, um, biological bases of neurological differences. Yes. Um, but this is also a true aspect of it.
0: Yes. Yeah, someone says neurodiverse means that our, our brains work differently for whatever reason such as being on the autism spectrum or having adhd uh, but ptsd is also neurodiversity mm-hmm. it means you have thoughts actions behaviors that aren't typical uh usually associated with autism spectrum and adhd, ADHD. Mm-hmm. thank you guys that's helpful gotcha
1: so i i um and i'll i'll maybe digress a little bit and hope and i this may be helpful um In my world as as a psychologist, I I see a lot of these terms are are meant to give common language. Um, But the unfortunate thing is that oftentimes that common language um, creates biases, right? And, well, in essence, um, can have some negative connotations because not everybody just takes it at face value for, you know, this is a common set of characteristics for people who meet this title, right? Um, So I'm very mindful and and cautious about, you know, when I give diagnoses to people because, you know, my first stance that I think about is, if I put this diagnosis in this person's chart, is it going to help them get what they need or is it going to harm them? Um, And if it's going to harm them, I'm very hesitant about making that diagnosis um, because that's not helpful to that individual if it's going to make them eligible for supports and services and for people to better understand what they need, then absolutely I'm going to make that that diagnosis. Um, So in thinking about the idea of neurodiverse, um, I talk to a lot of parents, I'm I'm more so a child psychologist than anything else, about ADHD. Um, And my stance with ADHD is, Um, it's a set of terms to describe how someone's brain works. Um, To me, it doesn't mean that there's something wrong with their brain, but more often than not, the way that their brain is wired is different than the way that is taught in most of our school systems. Um, And as a result, we get this list of symptoms, right, and behaviors that we see um, that we would describe as ADHD. And then we think about how do we support that child right or and or not support the child um to do a better job in fitting into um you know our square peg of how we're you know how um everyone else is taught in that classroom um so i I am very mindful of you know neurodiversity that way um and, you know, we have to think about what, what we do with these things and, and, and how do we empower and, and shift the lens. Um, anxiety is another, another topic that I think is often viewed negatively. Um, but oftentimes I talk to families about anxiety and say, you know, honestly, when we think about evolution, um, if we weren't wired to be nervous uh, we wouldn't have been aware of threats. So genetically, those of us that were more aware of threats and, and i.e. more nervous and technically probably more anxious are the ones that more likely survive generation after generation after generation. Um, and it also spills over into our trauma lens and how we teach about that, right? We have that heightened sensitivity in order to protect ourselves to remain safe um, and knowing um, and increasing a sense of awareness of when we actually are safe so that we can dial it back a little bit um, versus continuing to know like you know what I am in a situation where I'm not safe so I need this reaction to keep going in my body so that I can get to a place of being safe um, so it just thinks it's just begs for me to think about how do we put a spin on these things that are happening and where we go with them Okay. I want to switch gears a little bit and just talk and start to talk about some of the things to be mindful of. Um, so, um, being mindful of the trauma narrative and unpacking that. So, I have a couple of recommendations, and I also always encourage you to throw in additional thoughts that you have. Um, Yes, absolutely get information from appropriate, reliable sources. This may be um, caseworkers, um, if other family members are available. Um, Sometimes Google can be helpful for some language. Um, But also be mindful that it may not be true um, in that moment, or it may be true. But just being careful about um, where it is and how it sits. the importance of really interpreting unanticipated behavior as part of the trauma response until proven otherwise. Um, one of the things I always talk about is being mindful of the fact that people do the best they can with what they've got. Um, you know, I, I have strong reactions when I hear people say, I have a bad kid, right? Um, for the simple fact that Oftentimes, those behaviors that are told to us as bad behaviors or a bad kid, Mm -hmm. um, oftentimes there's some reason for it, right? Um, You know, when you hear the stories of um, a foster child smearing feces on the wall, um, it's probably a trauma response, right? Um, Because, you know, if it's dirty, if it's smelly, People who are abusing them are less likely to, may let be less likely to come after them, right? Um, but being mindful of, of what it is and, and what its protective factor has been um, in that individual's life, especially if you're starting to see them early on in that relationship,
0: Someone sorry, dr Bridget, someone says, I, "I love that. It seems as though many therapists who aren 't trauma informed think that trauma responses are automatically ADHD or bipolar
1: mm-hmm. absolutely um, and I really you know I, I feel like i 've gotten into almost arguments over the phone with people about this of so why aren 't you diagnosing adhd why aren 't you diagnosing like um, Conduct disorder, and, and I'm, I'm going back to saying because they don't have it, right? <laughs> there's other things going on that we're working on, and and I also believe in you know people who need to know should know, but there's certain aspects that not everybody needs to know know every single thing because sometimes yeah. things are used against our children too.
0: Yeah, the other someone says the other issues is teachers not being trauma informed. Um, Mm -hmm. It should be a required pre-service practice Mm -hmm. that that definitely is is challenging. Um, I know our teachers are being asked to take on more and more um, but someone says I'm a teacher and I completely agree.
1: Mm -hmm. And I think um, sometimes this is something either you get it or you don't right we we offer the the trainings and I, I think that if you embody it and you really take it in, um, you can get it. Um, but I think sometimes we have to peel off the layers of protection of the things that, again, that comment about lean in and understanding you know, something that may kind of make you pull back, um, you have to get past that. You have to find comfort in the discomfort in order to get down to the root and the base of things and to really move through these aspects that, that get us into the deepness of what happens. Um, I also say avoid asking questions that could feel judgmental or embarrassing. Um, and I'll, t- I'll talk about like language in, in specific, but that goes back to the, the microaggressions. Um, And the implicit bias and and just being aware of those things of how do we restructure those questions to invite openness and acceptance versus shut things down. And that's how we get to this idea of allowing for open communication. Um, Someone just said, and
0: I I think, sorry. So I just wanted to add this in there. Someone says, and I think this is so important. I also think foster parents need to be a bigger part of therapy while our children are with us. Mm-hmm. Um, we find we could use the information to best help the children, but we're excluded from that in the case a lot of times. Mm. And I okay. the child welfare is shifting a little bit um, towards uh, including foster parents as more of the team, which is definitely mm-hmm. a step in the right direction. Um, but I, I agree. The, the more we know and the better we can understand what they're working through and how they're working through it, the more we can keep that healing process going while we're
1: parenting right and i think about how it's packaged i think we we tend the pendulum tends to swing one way or the other um i do believe it's important for foster children to have a safe uh, neutral private space to share things that are going on in their life Um, and i also think it's important for there to be for therapists to know how to package the information that gets shared back to the foster family of this is what would be helpful right so it may not necessarily be we talked about this in detail that in detail and this other thing in detail but if a if a therapist is able to package and say you know gosh these are the things that trigger trauma for for this child These are the coping strategies that we worked on. Um, These are keywords that can help help you have better conversations moving forward. Um, All of those things would be helpful and engaging, right? And even if there are special times where there are certain sessions that you do things together, whether it's family games or family activities or getting to know you better activities that are moderated by the therapist, um, I think that helps to create better dynamics.
0: Absolutely. And I think someone says, we also have our own trauma responses, no matter how minor. And that is like, that is step one of being a foster parent, right? You are right. so right that our, our response is coming from our own experiences. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, with trauma and then just real quickly for those of you I'm loving this discussion if you're comfortable and would like to do your your comment to the whole group we do have some people think oh I'd love to see all these comments but some of them are just going to the panelists so if you're if you're comfortable sharing with the whole group please
1: feel free to do so absolutely and then you know time and time again you know this cope the coping strategies that are that are most helpful um you know, I think a lot of times we're given a list of, here's things that will help, help your child do better, right? Um, and nobody's a cookie cutter, um, but just knowing what, what works and what doesn't work. Um, and before I move away from that, I do want to also talk about um, foster parents can experience trauma, um, being a foster parent. So yes, we bring our past experiences in, but sometimes things happen in the home Um, with the children that are placed with us that are particularly traumatic. Um, So it it is important for foster parents to have supports and guidances and even potentially our own therapists um, to support us through those experiences too.
0: Absolutely. So much secondary trauma and what's called compassion fatigue. Mm -hmm. Uh, comes with foster parenting. Grief comes with foster parenting. Um, Remember I mentioned at the beginning and I'll have one of my team members put it in the chat again right now. Foster Source does sponsor uh, virtual therapists for the foster parent. There is no cost to you. It is life-changing for you to, to have that tool it should be it should be a given for every foster parent and that's the direction we're headed towards so um, the link is in the chat if you would like to be matched with a therapist go ahead and fill the form out there
1: Mm -hmm. absolutely perfect and then um i know we've been going straight through for the last hour Um, after this last slide i'm going to Try to just give us like a minute or two, just just kind of give a wiggle break. I know for just from Stan. So we do our best about an hour at a time. So I, you know, I don't want us to take away from things, but, um, you know, two to five minutes for us to just kind of like help reset because we've been talking about some heavy, heavy stuff um, in the midst of this. Um, and then be mindful of cultural values. Um, it's important to learn what's important um, to the child and their family. Um and when I say that, you know, sometimes you know there is a, a balance, right? If if you're working with a child um, who is identifies as as Muslim or Native American or um, whatnot, and there are family or cultural values that are critical, and that child has not learned them or is needing to learn them, thinking about how does that child get those things. Um, as well as the idea of what things are more choice for that child and less, you know, less of choice versus tradition um, and where does it fit. Um, and thinking about identifying healthy ways to maintain cultural practices that are important in your home without um, either overstepping or shutting things down um, and being aware of your own personal conflicts and cultural values. Okay. Um, so the next topic we're going to move into is communication. Um, or, is it okay if we take a minute or two for people to kind of decompress and stretch a little bit? Absolutely. It's 1041. Let's come
0: back at 1046, five minute bathroom, coffee, kid break, whatever you need to do. Okay. Go for it. All right. Perfect. That was nice. We've never done a break before, Dr. Bridget. Oh, perfect.
1: That was great. Okay. Yeah, I think sometimes we have to hit the reset button. Totally. Um, and science says, you know, 50 minutes to an hour and 10 minutes is, is kind of like the sweet spot where people tend to need a break to, to, yeah. to reset before, so that they can really continue to be effective in learning. All right. Do we have a sense that most people are back? I think so. Okay. Raise but. your hand if you're back, everybody. Oh, I love this, the fact that all, you can just, like, raise your hand and, and respond to things.
0: Yeah, slowly but surely, we've been, you know, finding all these tricks on, on Zoom.
1: We'll probably learn them
0: all right as we go back to in-person. Right. (laughs) No, actually this has been so effective that we will continue to do a digital version of it of all class. Even when we're in person, we'll go ahead and stream live then and Mm -hmm. keep it on demand because especially for foster parents, you know, Mm -hmm. we always say, and it's true. We don't know what we're waking up to. So it could be that we planned to come to training in person and somebody's having a really bad morning. And it just we just can't, right? We have to redefine success as foster parents about a hundred times a day.
1: Exactly. Exactly. Okay. I I I love this. I love the the interactions that we're having, even though um we're online, but we're also in the comfort of our own homes and we can, you know, kind of hear, you know, I'm 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 smelling the breakfast cooking in my house right now. Right. And I can check in with my baby and come back. And it's, it's, it's so great. So there's, there's certain advantages to this. That's exactly what
0: Devin said. She was like, I bet she went to check on her baby. I did.
1: I- <laughs> That's
0: cute. Yeah, I yeah. agree. And my team was, we were all chatting during the break. And they were like, this group is so awesome. Everybody's engaging so much. And yeah, it's definitely fun when we have an active group like today. So thank you guys. Yeah. Yes, thank you. Yeah, someone says, I do miss the daycare portion of in-person training. Amen. Yes, at Foster Source, when we're in person, we always provide free child care, and that will always be the case. And we are so ready. We cannot wait to get back in person. So as soon as it's allowed, we will be there.
1: Absolutely. Great. You guys have a great program over there. All right. I am going to move into talking about effective communication, and then we're going to move into talk a little bit more about some of the holidays. Okay. All right. Um, big, important conversations. Um, I, I I say it almost never works well um, if you spring big conversations on people. Um, it is so important to have time to prepare for big conversations. Um, some you know, just quick tidbits that I would recommend. Um, Think about scheduling um, important communications during lower stress time. So if, if dinner time is a lower stress time, absolutely go for it. But if dinner time is the time where people are like, are bickering or throwing food or somebody wants to get up away from the table or climbing under the table and then screaming and yelling, that's not the best time. Um, if bedtime, you know, after we read our stories is a good time, then, then we do it then. But we think about um, our strategy for when we have these conversations. Um, and you want to tell everybody when the conversation will occur, what it's going to be about, um, and if it's appropriate, what they'll be asked to do. Um, some families kind of instill and build this into their routine, <laughs> Um, so, you know, I know some families that when we were in the days of we picked up our children from school, um, you know, as soon as your, your children got into the car or during the walk from the bus stop, we have a conversation about, um, tell me something that went well during your day or tell me the, the best thing that happened to you today. Um, and then we also ask, tell me something that didn't go so well or something that you weren't so happy about today. Um or something that you would have liked to do better today, or something that you would have liked to do differently, um, because that starts to open up the, that safe space for, for communication. Um, and if we're starting to have systems in our house to develop those things, you know, some people they put on their refrigerator, family meeting on Friday evening at at 7 p.m. right before you know our family movie time, or um, they offer a safe space of, of ten minutes to, to check in, but you know we want to make sure that people are ready for big conversations as we move into them.
0: I think that's so smart. Um, someone says we talk at dinner time. That's perfect. Always start with what was good about our day. That starts on a positive note. It makes people feel welcome and uh, safe to share things. Um, The other thing I love, someone says, one of our teenagers is a cat. You can't come on too strong with serious conversations. (laughs) And the thing is, once we know
1: that about that child, then we approach differently, right? Mm -hmm. Right. Um, And I always say, um, when conversations start to feel unproductive, unhelpful, um, when the conversations start to be more about attacking the person versus attacking the problem, then it's time to take a break. Um, It's definitely time to take a break because we don't wanna walk away with negative feelings or people being shut down. Um, We can always come back and readdress um, before the damage is done. But once the damage is done, it's done and you have to rebuild trust before you can even start to get back to that place. Um, most people have probably heard this, um, try to use I statements when voicing concern or describing behavior. Um, so I'm not saying things like, I don't like you. That's not a helpful I statement. (laughs) Um, but you could say, um, I felt afraid when you were screaming, right. Or when you were cursing, um, or I felt loved, um, when you picked me up from school, or I felt special um, when you brought me that artwork. Um, That starts to give some context of what's going on, right? Um, Again, we get back to impact versus intent in our language.
0: they're talking about, and I've heard this before, that the car is helpful sometimes for these harder conversations because you don't necessarily have to look at each other,
1: right? Mm -hmm. And a lot of times that feels safer. Mm -hmm. Right. I am not a person that requires eye contact all the time. I know older generations, when I was growing up, it was, you know, we were taught to look at that person in the eyes, right? Look at them in the eyes, be straight straight up with them, get on their level. Um, In my training, I've learned to, you know, to kind of actually take a level down. When I'm in rooms with people, the first thing I wanna do is sit down. Um, And it may be sit down in a chair. It used to sometimes be sit down on the floor um, because I don't ever wanna tower over someone because that, you know, sends a, a, a message of power Um, And like, yes, sometimes you will be standing over people when you're having these conversations, but be mindful of when and why um, you would want to be over someone versus, you know, on their level versus not have eye contact in those moments. The next thing I want to talk about, the "it looks like" statements. I love "it looks like" statements, um, because then you can voice your uncertainty, right? And you can. It could be as simple as "it looks like something's going on" or "it looks like you're feeling differently," right? Um, if you don't have a clue of the context of what emotion is coming up, but you know, if you are getting the the angry sick um, signals or the worried or the sad, um, you can say, you know, it looks like you might be sad. Um, if you don't know what helps make that child feel better, you can say, are there some things we can do to help you feel better? And that child may say no and scream and run away. um, but that may be part of what they're doing to feel better. Um, or they can say, you know, I'm missing someone or they may say, um, I, you know, I want to blow bubbles or I want to listen to music. Um, And I love to, you know, work with families on having like coping toolboxes and coping bags and or even special coping corners where the child plays a a role in putting the things that help them feel better in that safe space for them. Um, And when you get to that point, you can sometimes just say, it looks like you're having a hard time. Let's get your your coping bag out or let's go to your your coping corner or your your coping space or whatever it may be or get your coping box out. Um, And then it just helps to model that, right? Um, So even if you are having a bad day, right, because we're all perfect and we never have bad days, (laughs) Um, but, you know, the truth of the matter is we have bad days. We get frustrated and the kids that are in our home see that. Um, So if you do have a moment, um, I don't want you to take it as a moment of, of embarrassment and I should have done better, but it's an opportunity for teaching and modeling, right? So you can you can say, gosh, you know, I'm sad too, or I'm worried too, or, you know, I got really angry. Um, so I am going to, you know, if, if cooking is what helps calm you down, I'm gonna go cook in the kitchen for a little bit and we'll come back to this conversation in, in 15 minutes or in 20 minutes. Um, or you can say, "I'm going to go take a break outside in the backyard, um, and then come back when when we can talk a little bit better." Are some of are these actual bags or
0: toolboxes, or are these skills? So, are there actual items,
1: <laughs> or is it a combination of both? It's a combination of both. <clears throat> so, I didn't put slides in here about. Um, what's, and but I think it's this is probably <clears throat> there is active versus passive coping, um, and when I talk about um, active coping, so these are things that you do yourself to help your, yourself feel better um, when you start to notice things are being off. Um, and guess what? The the wiring in the brain, those those pathways for. Um, those strong emotions, um, being angry, being sad, being anxious, um, the trauma responses, they're wired very similarly. Similarly, So the coping skills, they work across those feelings. But active coping skills, so they could be um, things like um, deep breathing or meditation. So those are like maybe you put them on a card, right, um, as a reminder. But they can also be if a person is more tactile, right? And we talked about neurodiversity, um, it could be fidget boxes. It could be um, clay. It could be play-doh. It could be drawing. Um, those are all active coping skills. If you have really young children and you want to introduce the idea of deep breathing, um, you can do it with um, with bubbles, right? You can you can go back and say, let's let's blow some bubbles. And what you notice, right? Because in this moment is if they're struggling and they're puttering out with these tiny little bubbles, um, they're having more of that that fast breathing that is really related to more anxiety and nervousness. But if they're able to slow down and take that deep breath in and then slowly blow out, and they're getting these huge bubbles, are you noticing that their bubbles are getting bigger and bigger and bigger over time, you're actually seeing that they're calming their system and calming their body down. Um, Because it's not always perfect to talk about deep breathing, you know, with a three or four year old, but um most three or four year olds like to blow bubbles right and you want to think about where you do this in your house because it can become messy very quickly you can do it outside you can do it um you know on the patio or the deck um or you can even you know put something down on the floor uh, over that space that's safe to do do something of that nature so you can put things like that um art supplies um journals Um, Those are all things that can go into a coping toolbox. You can put sensory toys. People talk about weighted blankets, right? Do you want to just go grab your weighted blanket? Um, Hugs, um, reading a book, um, those things are all active coping. Um, But what we do know is sometimes we get to the point of no return, right? And that's where we talk about like panic attacks and where, guess what? We have built up so much nervous, anxious Um, angry energy that we have hit the point of no return, right? Um, And we hit the point of no no return and you tell that person to do deep breathing and they say it's not working. It doesn't mean because they're not trying hard enough. It means because they have gotten to the point of we need to switch over to passive coping. And passive coping is really the idea of allowing your environment to help you calm down. Um, So that could be anything from um, turning on some relaxing music that, that that you like or that child likes depending on who who needs it in the moment um, it can be laying down with the lights turned down low um, a bath a shower um, any of those things so allowing that environment to calm you down some people like are you know more sensory and it's about the smell so is it um, you know there's is it that we, we bake cookies and they enjoy the smell of the cookies and it helps them calm down or Um, you know, if you burn candles in your home safely, whatever it may be. Um, So just kind of being mindful and aware of, you know, that point of no return so that we know we're using things appropriately at the right time. And we're also getting input from the child of what works to help them feel better.
0: And I wanna add that we all have our own coping toolbox as well. Mm -hmm. Right, so we're helping them, but we also have to watch. Or, I mean, I have a weighted blanket; I love it. Mm-hmm. Um, so the more we can regulate ourselves,
1: the better we can help them regulate. Absolutely, yeah. If we're totally dysregulated, um, kids feel it; they sense it. Um, they may not understand exactly what it is, but it it changes the dynamic and, and it affects your your ability to interact well. Um. And that's why I also love, I I was hearing that, you know, if you need respite, let us know. Um, That is so important, being able to take that time to yourself um, so you can reset and, and support your needs. Somebody says it'd be
0: great if you could get the child to do any of this during a meltdown. And I agree. Sometimes you can and sometimes you can't. And on those times you can't is the time when you just have to sit in with them. Right. Model the best, you know, model the grounding that and the regulation that you can and just Mm -hmm. sit with it. And
1: I love. Yep. And I love that you said that. Right. Um, And that is exactly that point of active versus passive coping. Um, when you're saying, you know, let's get the fidget box out, let's draw, if, if crayons are being thrown back at you, or, um, you know, the the deep breathing becomes huffing and puffing, or if you play like a, um, a meditation or a guided imagery, and they're just screaming at you, that's where we're thinking passive coping, because that energy has to come out and the, the body has kind of gone into panic mode. Um, so, Anything that that child tries to do is probably going to create more intense negative feelings and emotions. Um, So that is that point of this is where we sit with it and we let it come out. Um, And that's why we talk about like you can, you know, just kind of let the environment be as calm as possible around the child or around you if if it's you um, and wait for that moment for things to start feeling better. Um, And then we go from there. Um, the next communication strategy, I, I, I kind of introduced this a little bit, the idea of um, asking helpful questions and avoiding like the judgy and the um, assumptive and or embarrassing questions. Um, I say avoid asking why questions as much as possible, right? Um, you know, I, I hear parents say, gosh, you know, why did you pee on the floor? right well when you say that that child feels guilty and they feel bad right and maybe like they couldn't get to the bathroom or you know or they're scared of the sound of the toilet flushing or whatever it may be but you may not ever find that out because of how you ask the question right and you know parents come to me saying they won't tell me why they're doing these things um and why has been ingrained in our language, and it's probably um, one of the most challenging if not, um, you know, has some of the most negative connotations to it when we use it. Um, so I encourage you, when you have the moment when why is the first thing coming to your mind, um, consider how else can I put this out? This goes back to impact versus intent. Um So you can, you know, if you're getting all these reports that your child was acting out at school or they weren't doing well, you know, if you say, why couldn't you get it together at school today, (laughs) Um, you feel like just the next person that was trying to punish them. Or if, but if you say, it sounds like you had a hard day at school today, Um, what made it hard? I imagine that feels a little different. Um, right. Or Sometimes just, they
0: just don't have, they don't know. Right? right. Like you said, someone says we used to have an angry peer. He grew out of it, but he didn't have the language to express his anger. So he peed on the floor.
1: Exactly. Exactly. Right. And if we notice that, right, if we know that he's an angry peer, we can say, Oh gosh, we're having a bad day or you're really angry. Um, Let's find some things to help you feel better. Now, I'm not saying that there's not responsibility, right, in in taking care of what they could be able to take care of appropriately. So, you know, there is there a question of should they be involved in the cleanup, right? Helping to, you know, change their clothes and throw those clothes in the 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 washing machine, or you know, bringing new towels and things like that. That can be appropriate, but when is it appropriate, right? If that child is in that moment and they just peed on the floor and they're really angry, um, we want to help them calm down and, and process first. And then if it's appropriate, we can evolve, involve them in the cleanup process. Um, and you can ask the question, gosh, you know, how are you feeling just then? Or how were you feeling when you when you peed on the floor, right? Um, what would help you right now to feel a little bit better? Um and, and, and that gets at things you start to be able to put in the coping toolbox, right? Because I always say, um, you use the skill that helps you feel the best, right? And if peeing on the floor, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm using your example over and over again, is your best skill right now, the only time that that child will switch to something else is when they find something that makes them feel better than peeing on the floor. So, you know, if we tell you not to do it, well, you think more about it. I, I um, work a lot of times with kids that um, bite their nails. And I, I, I just had a conversation <laughs> with a, a, a pre-adolescent who does nail biting. And I said, you know, are there ways that your family can help you ways that your family's not helping you? And, you know, this all said, you know, every time I bite my nails, my mom just says, Stop biting your nails. And it just makes me think about biting my nails more. Um, and I said, well, what would help? Well, <laughs> and, you know, she's bright. She said, you know, if my mom, like, either gave me stuff to put in my hands when she noticed me doing that, um, or if I had my nails polished, um, fingernail polished chips, and it doesn't taste good. Um, so if I start to bite my nails and that nail polish chips, it kind of makes me stop. Um, but it's a different kind of conversation that you had. If I wouldn't have asked those questions, I wouldn't have learned those, those pieces. Um, and then, you know, those are those pieces that you take back to the parents, right, to help them in the moments of, you know, being able to, to catch those in a way and actually bring attention to them in a more accepting way so that children can actually start to use other skills that um, may be considered more helpful or more accepted. We kind of touched on this a little bit, um, the idea of creating effective communication um so this idea of creating a regular time for talks is it in the car is it at bedtime um is it on the couch um and you know what works um and i also encourage considering having a safe time for check-ins um and i say you know my biggest rule like any time i have a child in for therapy is um, as long as you're you're respectful, you can say whatever you need to say and you're not allowed to get in trouble for saying it. Um so you know it's it's okay to share those things. And uh, you know, every feeling is fear because I think, you know, I grew up in the era of, you know, you need to stop crying before I give you something to cry about, right? <laughs> or um, you know, you don't have anything to be disappointed about or angry about or sad about. Um that's saying your feelings aren't fair um and my policy is every feeling is fair um what we need to be more mindful is what behaviors we attach to those emotions right because not necessarily every behavior is okay to engage in in response to that feeling so how do we utilize like what's going on to empower and have more control of our body um, in response to the emotions that we experience.
0: Yes, yeah, someone says choices help. Absolutely, giving mm-hmm. choices.
1: Mhm. Absolutely. You know, if if your child needs to take a shower, um, it's it's okay to offer two choices if it fits within the, the family routine. Do you, do you need, or do you want to take your shower before or after dinner? Or, you know, and you can set some policies into, you know, into effect. We, you know, we don't start our, you know, time, like if people have earned time with electronics or social media, I wouldn't say social media with kids, that's dangerous, but electronics or watching movies or or favorite shows, maybe those times don't start until we finish some of those tasks that need to get done um, or retransition. transition But um, having some choice um, helps people feel like they have more control. Um, I'm not saying that um, children should run your house, um, but when there's choice that's infused, they feel like they have a little bit more control over their situation. Okay. Emotional triggers. Um, So I – always say the more that you can be aware of coping strategies before you start to get into the triggers the better Um, because if you know what helps someone feel better um, when those things come up when you know which inevitably they will um, there's some coping skills that are that have been that we've started to put in place I'm not saying this is going to happen in every situation um, but the the more we know and the more knowledgeable we are, the better off we can be in supporting those needs um, when things come up. So we talked about the active versus passive coping. Um, I start to like think about identifying cues. You know, is it that the someone's voice starts to tremble, or um, they speak uh, more loudly? Is it that you know, the fists, you know, people have like clenched fists on their side or their shoulders are up. Um, you know, start to look for those cues and see um, if you can catch them sooner than later. Um, kids are always watching you too. Um, so just try to model healthy relaxation strategies and verbalize, you know, moments um, when you're using them so that they see you doing it and maybe they want to come do it with you, right? Um, if that's okay. Um, it's fair enough to, to ask questions. What helps you feel better? Um, what helps you calm down? Um, what helps you to fall asleep, right? Because a lot of times those things that help kids feel sleepy are the, those things that help them relax. Um, also, what makes you upset? Um, and, you know, it may be some of the nuances, it may be the spaghetti dinner. Um, and that's going to help you be prepared to cope with some of the triggers that come up. Okay. Well,
0: let me throw this in there real quick. doctor. Okay. Someone says giving, let's see, setting a safety plan when they are calm with five things they can do when they are upset really helped. Absolutely. So kind of
1: get in front of it, right? Yep. We want to prevent as much as we can. Um, but when it, when it happens, it happens, right? But if we're prepared and we have like the skills, when you, when you are highly upset, it is hard to make good decisions and it's hard to remember those things that help you feel better. But if there are people who are around you who are calm and remember those things, or if there's a, a list that's in a special place in the house that you can go back to and, and use and say, oh gosh, these are your five things. Um, which one of these can we get out right now to help you feel better? That's perfect. Okay, I, with a lowercase p, I say when possible, avoid emotional triggers. Um, We can't always avoid them, right? So some people just being outside of school is emotionally triggering, right? Or just sitting down in front of the computer for virtual school is emotionally triggering. Um, But, you know, we can't say we're not going to do school. Um, So... In those situations, we want to prepare and support. So if um, math is particularly hard and it makes someone feel nervous, then on the days that we have math tests, maybe we do some special relaxation strategies before school, right, um, or before that math test. Um, and then as everybody's been saying before, when you're taken off guard, when you, you know something happens that's unanticipated, try to remain calm as much as you can, um, show support. Um, And I love that this is coming back full circle. When all else fails, wait for the moment to pass, right? So I'm being mindful. I'm realizing it's 11.17. And I have a let's see. We're getting on to the holidays now. Okay. So I wanna give these things their fair time, and I also wanna give time for people to answer questions at the end. Um, So definitely feel free to continue asking some questions, Um, but I'm gonna make sure I I keep us on, on on course so that we are on time too. Okay, so with the holidays, first of all, assume nothing when it comes to the holidays. That activity that we did, There were lots of different um, traditions and practices and things that were important um, across some of the same holidays. And some people celebrated this and didn't celebrate that. And um, so we want to be mindful of those things. Um, It's also important to learn about values. You know, some great questions that, you know, I thought about uh, would be good. What do you like to do when school is out? Because most of the time when school is out um, outside of the summertime, it's usually around holidays, right? Thanksgiving, Christmas, um, Easter, like a lot of times those holiday, those times when school is out is scheduled around special holidays. Um, and you know, they may say, we just like to sit around in our pajamas and and watch cartoons or we used to take family trips or we used to go sledding down the hill in the park. Right. And we used to make our own sleds out of, out of cardboard boxes. Um, those, those in essence become traditions, right? Um, And things that may be important and things that you could, you know, some things you could easily re-infuse that may create some excitement. Um, You can also ask, what are your favorite holidays, right? Um, Because I think sometimes if we start to say, do you celebrate this? Or why do you celebrate this? Or why don't you? (laughs) Um, Then we start to give some stance of like, if it's good or bad. Um, but if we start to ask, like, what are your favorite holidays? What's the best thing about them? Um, we get to learn a, a little bit more about those things. Um, what is the best part of your day is also a good question, right? Um, so if a child says the best part of my day is being alone in bed where I can go to sleep, you know, we want to think about that, right? You know, is it, is it a trauma response? Is it a depression response? You know, what is that? Or if they say the best part of their day is breakfast because they love blueberry pancakes. Um, you know, it's all information. Um, and then we did talk a little bit more about what's something that didn't go um, as planned. And we adjust this by children's age, too. And there, and I shouldn't say just physical age. We want to think about cognitive and emotional age as we ha- make our adjustments, too. So, what are holidays to people, right? They're cultural, they're religious, they're personal. They are commercial too, right? Um, I don't know how many people have heard of Swedish Day. I'm from Ohio and that's a big holiday in Ohio, but it's really just like Valentine's Day, but if they do it in October. Um, and it's really more commercial, right? It's a big hallmark holiday where lots of cards and chocolates and candies get sent. Um, Holidays are social, Um, they're emotional. So being mindful of how all these things intersect, right? Um, Because for some people, Christmas may be 100% religious and they don't get into some of the more commercial aspects of it. And for other people, Christmas may be 100% commercial and social and not religious at all. So we have to be mindful of the nuances of the different pieces of how we may celebrate the same holidays differently. All right, holiday inclusion. Um, So it is important to find out about what traditions are important. And we've we've been kind of talking about different strategies to start to find out some of those things and start to open up those conversations. and I want you to hear the message that it's it's okay and supportive to talk about your traditions and consider how you incorporate all of those things into everyone's values, right? Making this family plan of what the, the holiday season is going to look like and, um, you know, what places are okay to be more involved versus less involved and, um, you know, the other pieces that come into play. Because I think sometimes, um, if children are in contact or still have visitation rights, sometimes these children are going to have visits with their family and what does that look like and where do you, where does your role become and the back and forth of that. Um, I always say do not take it personal if a foster child does not completely understand all of your values. Um, and prepare for extended family. Um, you know, we're only responsible and can, we can only really control ourselves and our own behavior. Um, we never know what curveballs our extended family may throw at us. Um, you know, I think we're mindful of in, inviting the appropriate people and trying to create a buffer zone and a bubble in, in safety. Um, but think about um, what's important. and How do you plan for those moments, right? Because, you know, I think sometimes extended family can ask questions that may be inappropriate or maybe offsetting or maybe challenging Um, and you want to be prepared for those and and prepare the children in your house for that and I'm not saying you say oh when my aunt comes over to the house um, she says this but she doesn't really mean it Um, but you know it's more important for you to kind of like set some guidelines and boundaries with those family members first Um, and then know what you're going to do if they challenge those boundaries and the guidelines. All right, COVID and the holidays. I am not a COVID expert. Um, I'm a mental health provider that works in a medical setting. Um, So I hear about it a lot. I hear about the recommendations and the challenging things that are happening and how this may be changing everything that we do this year. Um, So there's this, you know, I always stress the, the importance of balancing safety versus reasonable risk. Um, Just as physical health is important, mental health is important, Uh, more and more people um, are presenting as more anxious, and we're starting to hear terms of like COVID PTSD, CPTSD, um, and there's more data starting to slowly trickle out about that. Um, So it is important to think about how do people stay safely connected and not completely socially isolated in these moments. Um, this is where I can, of course, use your help. <laughs> um, so, you know, considering like creative ways to celebrate things that are important to you. You know, are you doing virtual celebrations via via Zoom or you know other platforms like a Facetime where you can have group calls with the family? Um, are you sharing recipes and everybody's talking about like what they're eating in the moment? Or there's games that you're playing, um, you know, over those celebrations? You know, do you need to do uh, physical distancing at home versus not and you know and our people you know are you only in contact with certain people so you are able to do different things um you know our gifts coming in in different ways and different strategies um and then you know how do we spin this on its head um as challenging as covid has been you know we were just talking about like gosh you know being able to live stream um these presentations from home has been great and more involvement and, you know, it's, it's created more flexibility and we're going to continue to do that. So there is also this aspect of as a family, you know, how do we make these holidays as our own, you know, with some different guidelines because, you know, we can't have everybody from all over the country to come visit anymore. Um, So I don't know if anybody has thoughts or things that you're thinking about doing, um, that are different this year that that feel like they're good or feel like you would want to share um, that might be helpful for other people in the space.
0: I did see something from Zoom that they're going to be lifting that 40-minute restriction on private Zoom accounts over Thanksgiving. I don't know if it's just Thanksgiving Day or what, but that's, that's nice. That's a nice start if you're connecting with people um, on Zoom. And as you were talking about, you know, the holidays, what came to mind for me was just like realizing that it's, it doesn't have to be like a Hallmark movie. Like sometimes it's boring on the hall. it's boring or you're cranky or the house is a mess and that's okay. That's
1: okay. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Um, last but last, uh, not definitely not least, um, I wanted to just kind of briefly talk about appreciation. I wasn't sure of where else it fits, but I wanted to make sure that I touched on it. Um, you know, appreciation is, you know, so much of a cornerstone of support and identity and, you know, feeling accepted and um, more full. Um And I wanna just make sure that people, you know, understand that it's different for everyone. And I think that's one of the most challenging things because what my definition of appreciation for me and feels helpful for me may not be your definition. Um, So it's important to not assume that, you know, know, I love it when someone in my house washes the dishes, right? Um, And I come home to a clean kitchen, but that may not be appreciation for someone else. so, you know, take time to learn what is important um, for that person to understand that sense of appreciation. Is it just sitting with them for quality time and in silence? Is it um, a conversation? Is it like doing special activities together where you're able to interact or get to know you better games? Um, is it words of affirmation? You know, I I really loved it when, you know, I came home and, and your room was clean or, um, you know, I really love to see you happy or you did such a great job on on that assignment yesterday and we're going to put it up on the refrigerator so that everybody knows. Um, is it gifts, um, you know, and are there, you know, other things or other aspects? And I think that, you know, we want to be mindful of that because sometimes, You know, I hear parents get caught up in like, I give my child everything and they're still not happy. They have all of the the newest, most exciting toys um, and they're still not happy. But it's probably because um, that child's sense of appreciation is not necessarily in those toys and those gifts. It's in something else that that parent's not aware of.